welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. If there's one thing Americans know about James Madison, it might be that he was the shortest American president ever at just five foot four inches. Or perhaps that he was married to Dolly Madison, who was not only a first lady, but the baker of snack cakes. If they know a little bit more about James, then they know that he is remarkably, even dangerously contradictory. An author of the Federalist Papers, the father of the Constitution, who also penned the dangerous doctrine of nullification and opposed his friend Alexander Hamilton at every step of Hamilton's financial way. A creator of political parties who, as a practical politician, was a disaster, one of the worst presidents in American history, presiding over the half-baked wreck of the War of 1812 before slinking off the executive stage. With us to demonstrate how a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing, indeed perhaps one of the most dangerous things of all, is Jay Cost, author of James Madison, America's First Politician, a book which is not only about Madison, but about the political culture that he, more than anyone else, put into place, and the ideas that he set into motion, as well as some of those that he ignored. Jay Koss is the Gerald R. Ford Non-Residential Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and this is his fourth book. Jay Koss, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm really, uh, really, really glad to talk about Madison with you today. Well, let's very briefly, I got to hold myself back. Uh, I'm going to curb my enthusiasm to talk about the first five pages in the book. So very briefly, why don't you sketch out who the Madisons were and their place in Virginia uh, when James was hatched and as he came to teenage years. Yes. So Madison is born in 1751 at Montpelier, which is the family estate that his grandfather Ambrose uh, had sort of set up. Ambrose, shortly after they the Madisons had got to Montpelier in the 1730s, Ambrose died and left James's father, James Sr., in charge of the plantation. And so for all intents and purposes, uh, James's mother or grandmother was managing the estate until his father came of age. And by the time Madison is born, the estate is a thriving venture. It's n- nothing approaching the luxury and opulence of the plantations in the Virginia Tidewater in the Low Country, but it is it is successful and it is growing. Um, the Madison shortly, I think, in James's early teenage years, they would move into the house that is now the famous Montpelier Estate. Um, it was an expanding plantation and an expanding family too. Madison is the first of I want to say off the top of my head 11 children. So this is a very very large family and the Madisons are the most going to be the most prominent family in what is now today we know of as Orange County. I was I was kind of surprised by how early they came into the Piedmont. The Piedmont is in some ways the last place of central Virginia, the Tidewater Piedmont Valley. The Piedmont's in many ways settled after the valley was settled. Um, you have like John Marshall uh, growing up north of Madison in very frontier-like circumstances, but not on the frontier. But the Madisons not only have, I think you say that, is it by Madison's come? No, by Madison's coming of age, by 1770, they have 100 enslaved people? It's, uh, it's about ama- by, by 1800, there's about 100 yeah. enslaved That's a huge people. amount. Very, um, very large. Yes. Um, people don't usually understand that. That's large for, that makes it unusual even for, I guess it's a, it's a sign of how the Piedmont 
grows and prospers in the over the course of Madison's lifetime, that the Madisons are there so early and they do so well. Yes, I would agree with that. And it, Piedmont had been a place for mid-tier aspiring planters to come and uh, sort of stretch out a little bit. And, you know, the, uh, Ambrose was capable of, through his family connections, he and his brother-in-law uh, patented, I think, about 5,000 acres in the Piedmont. So it's a very large plot of land that they patented, at least. So there's a lot of room to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time Madison goes off to sort of boarding school, as we would say, um, he goes off to what are the steps of his education? Um, the, he's he's sent to the Inns Plantation, King okay, and Queen yeah. County, and then he comes back um, and uh, the the rector of the Brick Church, uh, Robert Martin or Thomas in, Martin, in um, Orange County. In Orange County, yeah, and and so from there, you know, not everybody in his social socioeconomic status would go on to college, but Madison being exceptionally bright mm-hmm. goes, uh, importantly, he goes, to, he goes to the college of New Jersey rather than William and Mary he does not go to William and Mary he goes to the college of New Jersey, which is today Princeton, which ends up being really important for him in many, many respects. And, uh, he goes there in what year? 69, 70. Yes. He goes in 69. Yes. He goes. In so 69. John Witherspoon, sort of Scottish uh, clergyman, anti-theater advocate, uh, Scottish enlightenment representative and overall sort of, you know, educational impresario entrepreneur. He's arrived in 68 and he's gotten the idea in his head to, um, market the college of New Jersey to Southerners and he's successful. Um, Madison's like the first crop. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and Witherspoon had completely redesigned the curriculum, turned the school around. It had sort of its reputation had sunk a little bit. Um, but uh, with their, Witherspoon, their Princeton's kept dying. It wasn't really their fault. They all got small. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Madison gets what we today would call, you know, the classical liberal arts education, a really impressive education, Greek and Latin and French, mathematics, moral philosophy, um, science history just just the, what we we would today think of as a kind of a premier humanities education so what does he learn i mean you, you're very clear that he learned certain things he had three clergyman teachers um what did he learn from them yeah that's a good question um madison was never a particularly religious person throughout his life um he was not as openly heterodox as jefferson was obviously Religion didn't seem to have much of an effect on him one way or another. But I, I do think that the consequences of not just religious learning, but also being educated within the Calvinist tradition um, imparts upon him what I sort of call a dim view of human nature. <laughs> and I think he's more drawn to the moral psychology of David Hume um, but there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of overlap there between the two, even though Hume's obviously an atheist. Um, and, and, and I think that ends up informing a lot of his political thought, where you can sort of understand Jefferson having a more optimistic view of the masses and Hamilton having an optimistic view of the elites. Madison had a pretty pessimistic view of just about every group. And that ends up being 
the, that pessimism ends up informing his political philosophy. I think more than anything, I would say another important factor in his education at uh, Princeton rather than William and Mary is that it's a Presbyterian school. And so Witherspoon in particular is very Whiggish, not in his theology, but really in his uh, views on church organization. And Madison is going to have a tendency to look askance at hierarchies, self-appointed government, which would be another thing I think that he would look at the, the Church of England's self-appointed nature as just a sort of very skeptical of it, uh, worried that it lends itself to corruption. And, you know, it's it's not a dynamic, self-cleaning sort of self-correcting way to organize things. So I yeah. think that would be another thing as well. I, I would say much more so than, he, like I said, he doesn't really walk away with any kind of particularly strong religious sentiments. But I, I, I do think that his instruction within the um, Calvinist tradition, particularly because his his educators, his main, Witherspoon certainly was um, was a Calvinist. Um, so that would be, and Donald Robertson, who was his first educator at the Inns Plantation, was also a Presbyterian or non-Anglican. So that that ends up being very important. It's interesting. I, I, I let me float a, a psychological theory by you that you know, if I was writing a biography of, of James Madison, I wouldn't put in the book. But here it is. Uh, he stays an extra year, I, I thought, at Princeton to study with Witherspoon. He does. Uh, am I, and that usually was done by young men who wanted to learn better Hebrew as part of preparation for the ministry. Yes. Um, so that's always been curious. Some people have commented on that. That's always struck me as very curious that he did that. Um, it also is, we know that he went into a sort of strange, um, when does he leave Princeton? Like 72? There's about a 70, four year. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Like a, so it's like a four year failure to launch for James Madison, which yeah. is comforting for some. Um, but it, before he sort of all of a sudden ascends to elected office, which we'll get to in just a sec. Um, and I've wondered how much of that was a sort of religious crisis. Um, some people have said it's a, it's a health crisis. It's, uh, it's melancholic. Well, melancholic and religious crisis, that kind of goes together in the 18th century or even in the 21st century. Yeah, it's very possible. You know, one of the challenges we have in understanding the early Madison is that we don't really have large quantities of his letters. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's when, you know, one of the advantages of studying Madison is that all of the, a large portion of his correspondence with Thomas Jefferson is retained, which is especially important for understanding his work in the 1780s because Jefferson is overseas or they're, they're separated. They don't really see each other very often. So there's long letters where they're detailing each other. This is, this is what's going on. This is what I think about these things. Uh, but when we're looking at Madison in the, that time after he graduates from Princeton, we're really left with a handful of letters that he wrote to William Bradford. And yeah. even that, we're, we're fortunate that Bradford held on to them. I mean, because that's the other thing, you know, his papers have to be collected and compiled, but ultimately they have to be preserved. And, you know, one of the things he, he, he was mindful of too, you know, he himself um, in his old age went through his papers and, you know, at various points, he has, he has a romantic 
uh, interest in a woman in 1782, 83 named Kitty Floyd, and it blows up in his face. And he gets a letter back that he had written to Jefferson, and you can see he tried to like scratch portions of it off. So he ends up. So to you know, another example is we have very little correspondence between him and Dolly. Yeah, that these are not things that he wanted us to know. So to what extent, um, what was really going on? It's hard to say. It's uh, it, yes, I noticed that. And it, it strikes me that uh, with Madison, we're talking about the public Madison and the heart he kept always to himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really, we really don't know. Motivations are very difficult to to know for people who are who document themselves copiously, um, and James Madison carefully did not document himself yes. copiously. Yes, exactly. Um, at 26, uh, he's elected to the Virginia legislature. And uh, you say he's, in many ways, uh, probably the first professional American politician. Could you, could you explain that? Sure. Um, I mean, obviously, he's not the first politician. Uh, no, but and- he's, he's not a lawyer. He's not. No, a, he's, that's got, right. he, he's got nothing. He's not a, he's not a sort of full-time planter. He's, no, he's what not. he's got at 26 is politics. Yeah, that's right. Um, he's not a lawyer. He's not a preacher. He's not a merchant. He's not a planter. He is able to commit himself full time to politics, which is one of the reasons why he was able to rise through the ranks so quickly. I mean, he was just available Um, and he was also useful as a full time politician because he was good at actually doing the drudgery of government. Um, And the reason he's able to do this is because his his father. I mean, Mm-hmm. Again, the the Montpelier plantation is nothing as prosperous as, say, George Mason's plantation or or the Mount Vernon plantation. Um, but it is at this point a successful venture, and it you know it's obviously successful enough for James Senior to send his son off to college and then continue to subsidize him when he is in. Um, when he's in Williamsburg. And I mean, additionally, as well, you know, and it speaks to the elitist kind of nature of Virginia politics as well. And the fact that who you knew and who you were related to was very important. That his cousin, James Madison, would happen to be his name, is actually by the time. Yeah, Madison is by the time our James Madison is working on the Privy Council, which is an advisory council to the governor, his cousin, James Madison, is the president of William and Mary. And so James has a nice place to stay. So he didn't have to worry about things like that. But yeah, so it enables him. And it's it's sort of an interesting turn of affairs because when he graduates from Princeton, as you'd alluded to, he enters this kind of moral, spiritual, psychological, existential crisis that is really it's broken at, in after really the intolerable acts. He gets very interested in politics, and you know the break from Great Britain necessitates the creation of American politics. I mean, that's why he gets elected because the governor, Governor uh, Dunmore, has left Virginia. He's gone to New York, and the, he burns um, he burns Norfolk and skedaddles, and so the Virginians are now task they have to govern themselves and so it's for this purpose that he enters politics so um what did he do and what what did he learn during the american revolution because he bounces about from various assemblies and positions and uh working like crazy the entire time obviously the person that you give a job to yes yes um he learns he learns a lot of things um he learns about the 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 
policy details of government, which is something that is going to hold him in good stead. So by the time we get into the 1790s, he's as close as we have as an expert on tax policy. He's very well versed in foreign policy for the same reason. Um, he also learns how politics works on as a craft. So this is another thing that's going to hold him in good stead because, you know, he works for Patrick Henry. He works for Thomas Jefferson. He goes up to the Continental Congress in 1780. He sits in the Continental Congress. So that is, for instance, Madison ends up being the first person to put together a legislative log roll uh, in an effort to get a tax plan passed through the Continental Congress. So that's an example of the art of politics. So he learns about the art of politics. I would say the most important thing that he learns while he's during the revolutionary period. So between 1776 and his, let's just say the, the Treaty of Paris in 1783 is also the same year he leaves Congress. He learns that the Articles of Confederation are not sufficient to meet the needs of the United States of America. And he is uh, his time in Princeton had given him a nationalistic kind of impulse. It was also very common among the men of that, the young men of the time tended to be more nationalistic, more enthusiastic about the revolution. And the fact that Madison was in the middle colonies where you're in, interacting with a large number of people from up and down the, down the continent gave it, a, he had a very nationalistic kind of feel to him. But the watching the Congress fail uh, redirects his nationalism into a decidedly political direction where we need a, a national government to manage the affairs of this nation and that the Articles of Confederation are not sufficient. So that would probably be the most important lesson he gains. Okay, that, that, that's kind of a high school textbook. So let's uh, sort of uh, respond. So what, what is there any particular moment where Madison really realizes the weakness? Because my God, it was hard enough to get the Articles of Confederation passed. And as a Virginian, he must have felt that keenly since, as I recall, Rhode Islanders saying, you know, if Virginia just will give up its claim to Western Pennsylvania, the Ohio Valley, and probably the Crimean Tartars, um, then we can get on with the work of the Articles of Confederation. Um, that's more or less a direct quote from James Varnum, I think. Um, yeah. So there must have been some moment, particularly even after the, when the articles were done, where Madison says, no, this is not going to work. Yeah, the moment really is the failure of that impost. So the, the story with that is, is that Congress is not allowed to tax. So what Congress does is it is it essentially asks the 13 states to put an impost, uh, a 5% tax on imported goods that with dedicated revenue. And Congress allows, I mean, it gives the states the right to hire the tax administrators um, and that the purpose of it is, you know, to steady the nation's finances. And it's a good plan, but Rhode Island says no. And Rhode, Rhode Island saying no, the whole thing, it, the whole thing falls apart. And they try for two years to put it back together, but it, it just doesn't work. And I think that is the moment. And more than that, I, I also think there's sort of a combination of things where you know, the, the lead sort of financier of the revolution, the lead nationalist in Philadelphia is Robert Morris. And rather than embrace Morris's ideas, there's sort of self-interested factions 
within Congress that drive him out of the government altogether. And Madison was never especially close to Morris, but I think there was, Madison was responsible and understood that what a benefit to the country Morris was. And to see him ridden out of the government was, I think, probably the low point for him. And so when he leaves Congress in 1783, he's, he's convinced that this government is not going to work. Now, just because he left Congress doesn't mean he's not then doesn't do immensely important things. Um, many people, I'm thinking Pauline Mayer and her book on the ratification, of the Constitution, always points out how popular histories, but often sometimes academic histories, have really ignored the importance of the what's going on in the states, both during and after the Revolution. And Virginia is a a center of energy. It's a it's a furious driving engine for a 1 million plus population of free and enslaved uh, right. and, and Madison's in the thick of it. Uh, as you alluded to earlier, we know about this because he's writing back to his new friend, Jefferson, describing everything that he's doing. And one of them is uh, trying to get many of Jefferson's plans back from when he was governor in 1779, get them enacted. Uh, we talked a little bit about, about this with Andrew O'Shaughnessy, the failure that twice, the two-time failure during the 1780s to um, get the public school bill passed, but he gets the Statue of Religious Freedom passed. Could you explain that and its importance to Madison's thinking? Sure. Well, a part and parcel of Madison's opposition to favoritism by government, and that's sort of the leading guiding light Madison's political theory is the government should be a neutral umpire, and it's a phrase that he uses with Washington. So he is... Uh, from the very beginning of his career, he's opposed to a religious, an established church, and Virginia is one of the one of the states that has an established church. And Madison tries during the debate over the Virginia Declaration of Rights to push beyond George Mason's call for religious toleration to complete disestablishment. He's not successful. That being said, in the succeeding years, um, they do. I believe, stop paying the salaries of pastors. Flash forward to 1884, Patrick Henry um, is worried about the moral climate in Virginia and believes that there has to be you know, public support of religion. And he proposes a piece of legislation that is intended to support all Christian denominations, or at least all you know Christian denominations that you know are Trinitarian and deny transubstantiation. So the typical Protestant groups, mm -hmm. and 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 Madison is opposed to this, and it really sort of an illustration of his um, theoretical knowledge, sort of reinforcing his cr knowledge of the craft of politics. He very adroitly. Uh, gets the uh, the House of Delegates, because he goes back in the House of Delegates, um, to suspend or not do the third reading of the bill, which is necessary for a final passage um, until after uh, the session the session ends. He goes back to Montpelier and he writes his memorial and remonstrance on religious assessments, where he makes a, a positive case for disestablishment, for pushing beyond toleration and into separating church from state altogether. And he does this in, in a very strategic way, sort of looking at the different factions within Virginia politics. He anticipates the Anglicans will be in favor of this. He knows the Baptists won't be. So he's trying to mobilize the Baptist 
um, against it. And also the Presbyterian clergy had been in favor of it. So he wants to sort of communicate to the Presbyterian laity what's going on and count on them, um, uh, you know, sort of pushing things. So by the time the House of Delegates enters its next session, you know, public opinions, you know, you just a flood of letters come in you know, and constituents sort of, you know, telling their, their representatives, hey, this is garbage. And so not only does Henry's assessment bill die, but the political space is created for um, Madison to basically get Jefferson's uh, statute on religious freedom enacted. So, which I, I think it speaks of Madison's particular political gifts, where it was, you know, Jefferson's idea, but Madison was the one who actually got it accomplished. And the um, the logic and the rhetoric in that memorial and remonstrance could only have been written by Madison. Um, I think that in many ways he's it, it's anonymous, and we can talk about how long it remained anonymous. Um, that he's writing it as if he is a Presbyterian minister who knows a lot about the early church. Yes. I've, always been, I've always been struck by the profundity of its theological arguments as well. Um, yeah, he, and, yeah, that's a good point. And Jefferson could never have written anything like that. It's yeah. only someone who had been educated by Witherspoon, you know, for an extra year that could have put that together. Yeah, Madison. That's a good point. He makes a he, you know, he makes the argument that the early church was, you know, not established, and that the history of the uh, the uh, of an established church has been, you know, ignorance in the in the laity, corruption in the clergy, and a general sort of indolence of religious sentiments. So it's it's mm-hmm. and and you know it's um politically it was a very savvy piece of writing too. It's it, mm-hmm. it's it's is it's, it's not like one of his Federalist essays where he begins with an, a conclusion or he begins with a premise and works his way to a conclusion. He has a series of arguments. And it's sort of almost like a bullet point, uh, almost like talking points expanded into you know paragraph length, and and, and it, it's done with an eye towards building a political coalition. Is what what he's writing that for. It's the intention behind it is to mobilize public opinion. And so some arguments are going to work on some people. Other arguments are going to work on other people. It's, it's really it, it, it's easily overlooked considering mm-hmm. the other you know the Federalist you know. But as a piece of public. Uh, polemic. It's a very impressive, especially considering how young he was, that he was only in his early 30s when he writes that. It's really impressive. The, um, the This also is a time which sees him entering into George Washington's orbit, who's back home at Mount Vernon, and trying to negotiate a deal between Virginia and Maryland over the canal, and many things other besides. And for the next ooh, roughly eight years or so, Madison's going to be one of well, for a while, he'll be sort of in Washington's sort of personal think tank along with George Mason until George Mason blots his copybook, uh, the Constitutional Convention. So could you describe briefly that sort of the Washington-Madison relationship and its importance for the sort of yeah, the, the well, next period? Sure. Um, they have similar – so they're both nationalistic. They're both unhappy with Congress. Um, but what really brings them together in the beginning is their interest in developing – the waterways of Virginia, particularly uh, directing Western traffic um, on the on the waterways into Virginia, um, is something they're both very that that's something they both want to do. And and Madison, since he's serving in the House of Delegates, is effectively able to um, 
you know, serve as Washington's point person. So for instance, Madison gets the Potomac company, um, uh, chartered by Virginia. And, and the, the ultimate goal is to, you know, extend the navigability of the Potomac river up to the Ohio river. And then eventually sort of to sort of draw traffic. And, and then this desire leads them to eventually, um, leads them back to the question of nationalism because accomplishing this goal is going to require Virginia to engage Maryland because Maryland has rights to the Potomac River as well. So that leads to the Mount Vernon Conference and and where Washington presides. Madison was actually invited as a delegate, but Patrick Henry didn't tell him in time that he had been selected as a delegate. And the, you know, the, 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 the Mount Vernon uh, event is a success and it, and it really inspires them to try a new tack with respect to strengthening the government, which is outside uh, conventions meeting to, you know, recommend changes or in the case of the Mount Vernon conference um, is, you know, just to cut a deal between the two states. So this is, you know, that that is in turn what leads to the Annapolis Convention um, of 1786 and that's you know ultimately toward the constitutional convention so it's a you know their interest begins on a sort of strategic level on a day-to-day level on you know internal improvements in virginia but because they're both nationalistic and neither of them are happy with the state of affairs in congress they just eventually wind their way back to that central problem i mean it's really remarkable too i think that madison never ran for governor of Virginia, never expressed an interest in being governor of Virginia, um, really speaks to the nationalism of his political character. Mm-hmm. Despite the way in which Virginia had been an invaluable sort of uh, uh, launching pad for yes. his political career. Yes. Um, so let's uh, briskly go through, because Madison, throughout this period, from 1784 to his arrival in, in Philadelphia, has been thinking about constitutions and republics. And he's uh, reading and thinking and writing and sharpening his ideas uh, so that he finally has the Virginia plan, which right. Edmund Randolph presents, uh, <laughs> right. but which um, Madison and, and maybe other people have had input to it too. I'm not sure what's, we, it's probably can't be. We don't known. really know for sure. No, yeah, that's right. You know, the challenge with that too is that those meetings would have, you know, that's another, when, when people are meeting face to face, we don't. Unless somebody kept a diary, we have no idea. Like that, that so, and those meetings would have happened in in Philadelphia, they have, and they would have very much happened, or they would have happened between, say, Edmund Pendleton and right. uh, Washington and and Madison and perhaps George Mason, perhaps, uh, yeah. you know, and it would that would have been the way that Washington would have done it because this is kind of this is uh, this is they know this is this is a. Uh, sensitive stuff that it's yes. discussing. Um, it's going to seem to some, like the governor of Virginia, um, that this is a, basically a sort of coup attempt uh, that's being done to the Articles right. of Confederation. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, it's absolutely a coup is what they were doing. I mean, you know, the, the Congress had authorized the uh, Constitutional Convention or the Federal Convention to submit proposals designed to render the federal constitution adequate to the exigencies of the, of the nation. That was what they said, whatever, what, whatever that means. Um, but it, that's not what they do though. What they end up doing is they redesign the government. And then I, you know, I think the most significant aspect of that or the most, the reason we would call it a coup attempt is because it's not 
dependent upon Congress's assent. Congress does it, you know, Congress passes the the uh, the Constitution on to the states, but instead of Congress making a decision, it's left to special ratifying conventions. So they, you know, they they also take a detour around the state legislatures. Now, granted, the state legislatures would have to call the ratifying conventions. But with that exception, you know, they are really working outside the existing channels of government, which I think gets back to their conviction that the existing channels of government are not going to work. They, they, they're never going to agree to make the changes that need to be made. So ultimately, we have to go directly to the people through these ratifying conventions. And that step, it is very, it was actually a very radical thing that they did. So what's the direction of Madison's thought from 1784 to 1787, and how does it manifest itself in the Virginia plan? Yeah, well, Madison is struggling with, um, as I said, you know, he, he writes a letter to Washington in the spring of 1787 saying the phrase he uses is the great desideratomy that recurs in a, and it's in the Federalist Papers. It's, it's, it seems like it was a phrase that was stuck in his mind. So the great desideratomy, ultimate necessity, what, what government needs more than anything. Is he says a neutral umpire, right? And and he talks about this in Federalist Ten, that politics is really a question of justice. The problem is, is that the parties to the cases are themselves uh, supposed to sit as the judges, and that's no way to secure justice. So how do we secure justice? Well, you know, the two prevailing theories would be a small republic, like the American states were. Or you could have a mixed regime such as Great Britain. Neither of those are acceptable to Madison. Um, I mean, for obvious reasons, we're not going back to a monarchy. Madison hated the British monarchy. Um, in early letters, he calls it a terrible pictures of cruelty, is I think the phrase he uses. Um, and that, I mean, that's a problem with you know a self-appointed government. Yes, the, the governor, the self-appointed sovereign, is above the fray, but he also is not uh answerable nobody he doesn't answer to anybody so that's the problem with that and the problem with small republics is that when you have a faction that amounts to a majority you have uh you have democratic tyranny which is something that the united states is experiencing in several states so what do we do then so madison's solution the grand solution that he comes up with and again this sort of this gets back to his calvinism which is we'll just, you know, selfishness, human selfishness is not necessarily a problem if it's on a large enough scale. If it's on a large enough scale, what he calls an extended republic, it takes in a diversity of factions and interests. No group will preponderate. That will force everybody to bargain and compromise with each other. And in that process of bargaining, there will be the discovery of something that at least resembles the interests of the whole country. So it's, it's a... It's sort of the pessimist way of coming up with, um, you know, the best possible answer, which is we'll just use human selfishness against itself. Human beings in their avarice and their greed and their hatred will just check one another. And then after that has happened, nothing will be able to get through sort of almost like imagine running a gauntlet. Nothing's going to get through the gauntlet except something that everybody can reasonably live with. That's the national interest. And so what that implies for Madison then is a truly national republic. That means two things. First is proportional representation in Congress, not just the House, but also the Senate, and also a Congress that is, for all intents and purposes, 
supremely powerful when it comes to any matters of national import, including so, a veto yeah. over state legislation. That's what I was looking for. That's his, yeah. the, this is why his idea. Um, any other aspects of the Virginia plan that might seem crazy to us now? Well, I mean, it's certainly, uh, you it know, sounds kind of crazy. Certainly it goes against the last 200 years of sort of political culture. It is. Vi- yes, it was very, very bold. Um, and it's too much for the delegates to swallow. Um, I certainly think, pro- I mean, I really want to emphasize what he's talking about with the, the veto over state legislation, right? Which is he's basically going to turn the states, revert the state governments into like colonial governments where the, the colonies, every but the king had to ultimately give his assent to colonial legislation. He's going to give Congress that power. Also, one point in the debates actually suggests having representatives or agents of Congress in the state legislatures or on site to give like preliminary <laughs> sanction to legislation. Wow. So it, that is a remarkably different vision of the way government was supposed to work. Yeah, uh, that didn't happen. Um, And for that, among other things, you write that Madison was utterly disgusted by even before the Constitutional Convention ended. Um, Because why? Because of his conviction about uh, the national majorities, right? And and also the danger of, you know, he had rejected by this point, he's rejected the classical Republican model of, you know, government at – Self-government works best on a local level in small polities where people know each other and they they can keep an eye on the they can keep an eye on the governors. He's rejected that. He doesn't think it works. He thinks that instead it just leads to petty, basically petty tyrants. Is is what he he thinks is that there's majorities in these states that are petty tyrants. And and it's it the the thing to bear in mind here it's it, the tyranny of these state majorities is operating in two directions the first is is that they're infringing on the rights of minority groups so for instance in Rhode Island Rhode Island the majority in Rhode Island are small and impo- impoverished farmers so they pass laws basically you know taking money from creditors Massachusetts you see the opposite right the the merchant class in Boston is the dominant faction they burden they burden the farmers in the central and western areas what do you get you get revolution so you have things like that that I mean leading to social unrest but beyond Mm -hmm. that you know another another challenge is is that you know the states had obligations under the the treaty of Paris in 1783 uh, to respect the property of the loyalists to not seize their property. Um, I mean, the Treaty of Paris was a fantastic deal for the United States. The obligations that the Americans actually had to do for to the British were virtually nothing, and the Americans couldn't even do could, couldn't even do the basic duties that they were. You know, they 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 abused the loyalists because they were a politically convenient target. But the British respond by refusing to remove their soldiers, their their bases out of the present what we what they call what we today call the old Northwest, so like Detroit. Um, and the British are up there because they want to keep an you know they want the fur trade and they're all, ultimately what they're trying to do is create a Native American buffer state. They want that land back and they're using the abuse of the state governments as a pretense to you know continue to hold that area. So 
it, it, that the idea there, the, the point of this is that state legislation could, even if it seemed to be a local matter, had national consequence. And so that is what Madison is looking to stop. He's looking to stop the states from doing anything that could interfere with the harmony of the union and the proper exercise of congressional power, because that is what they had been doing. I mean, Madison's solution seems especially you know, radical to us. I, I think we need to remember that the state governments had been especially irresponsible. And yet, despite his moral existential disgust with the result of what he had dreamed, uh, dreamed and planned for, um, he turns into the, yeah, let's say the, the preeminent defender of this new constitution, uh, both in Federalist, but also in the Virginia uh, Convention. So uh, is that because um, I, I, that anti-Federalist arguments, uh, which immediately flooded the zone, did they sharpen his thinking and concentrate him, his mind? I, I, it's You know, it's hard to say because he was really – he did not share his disgust with anybody except Jefferson. Right. Um, he kept it very close to the vest. Even his father, for instance, he didn't say anything like what he said, to, what he said to Jefferson. Um, I think one thing I will, I will say with respect to his reaction to anti-federalism, he had a, he had a very disgusted reaction to anti-federalism. And, and I, and I think that it did sharpen his mind in the, in the sense that, he believed that the anti-federalists were exactly wrong. Okay, it's it's interesting because both Madison and the anti-federalists thought that a federal system where power is shared was a contradiction in terms. Right, that you could not simultaneously have. I mean, this was Madison's unvarnished private opinion. You could not simultaneously have the state governments with sovereignty and the federal government with sovereignty. One was going to end up dominating the other, and in Madison's private letters to Jefferson. He's very clear that the convention did not empower the federal government to dominate the states. So therefore, the states are going to end up dominating the federal government. And the federalists or the anti-federalist essays, particularly Brutus's, who Brutus's are very effective or rhetorically powerful. And, you know, that there's a lot of good points in them as well. But the anti-federalist argument is that, well, there's you know, this is a contradiction in terms, right? Uh, you, a national government and a federal government, the same term. That's a contradiction. One side or the other is going to dominate. And if you look carefully at the Constitution, you're going to see that the, the, the authors of it are just being really sneaky. They're using this. Basically, it's like a, they, you know, the argument of the anti-federalists is this is a Trojan horse for complete federal control. And their argument is, is that if you look at the Constitution very carefully, you'll see all these ways the federal government can totally destroy the states. And Madison thinks they're exactly wrong, that they're, they're exactly wrong. And, and so this is one reason why his Federalist essays are so effective, because he actually agrees with them on the large philosophical point that there's a tension here. But he thinks that the tension, his personal thought, is that the tension is going to be resolved in the favor of the states. So his his Federalist essays are very effective at rebutting the anti-Federalist critiques and sort of laying out just how much room the states are going to have to operate, just how narrow the powers the federal government are going to possess are, all of the ways in which the state governments are going to be able to influence the federal government 
but not vice versa. It's what makes them a very powerful set of essays. So speaking of the federal set, uh, papers, um, what uh, are his, to your mind, the most beautiful moments of Madison's argument? What what numbers are, are his best? What's, what's his best mm. work? I know it's, um, it's difficult. It's difficult for a Madisonian like you to come and just, just stop at one potato chip. Just don't stop at four. Okay. I'll stop at four. So or five, I, say, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would say that I, obviously Federalist 10 um, and, and Federalist, his, yeah, Federalist 10 and Federalist 51, which oh, are his. See, I, I was afraid you're going to go for those. Those are the old well, chestnuts. Those are those yeah, always but, get, we inflict upon board undergraduates. So that's yeah, got to be, that's got to be, they're, well, they're still I, the best. They're, still good. Say, they're important. Yeah. The other two I would say, I think are Federalist 37 and 38. Um, okay, what's, are, what, what are they about? Because I, those, it's been yeah, so long since I've read them. <laughs> yeah, th- those are the those are the essays that he wrote praising uh, the convention um, uh. and the work of the convention and how the convention was able to set factionalism aside and consider things dispassionately. Um, and and I think those are really important for understanding his intellectual journey from opponent of the constitution to advocate of the constitution. And I think it's important for a number of reasons. I think it's just important for him for having gotten over his bitterness and sort of with the advantage of time. And I mean, it really is remarkable that, that it worked. I mean, that they, you know, they were grinding their wheels in July over over representation in the Senate, but they hung together and they solved the problem. But I, I think there's something else as well, it, it is that the anti-federalists could not agree with themselves on anything. The the only thing the anti-federalists really believe is that the cur- the Constitution proposed is terrible. After that, their views run the entire gamut. And, you know, like a good example of this is at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, George Mason admits that the Articles of Confederation are not working right, but Patrick Henry won't even admit that point. <laughs> and so and, and so there is a, a, a kind of um, those essays really reflect that we need to get serious here, people. It's this or it's nothing. Um, and, and, and like it's all well and good if you have objections to this. No instrument of government is perfect. Maybe this won't work, but this is the only idea on the table. The critics are, I mean, the critics are defined by the word anti. And yeah, maybe five or six years ago, we could delude ourselves into thinking that these, the articles could continue to work, but they're obviously not. And if we don't do something, then the country's going to fall apart. And this is the only something on the table. It's not as though the country is debating two two instruments of government, you know, it's this, or we go back to the drawing board. And if we go back to the drawing board, Madison's point is why on earth should we think we're going to be successful? I mean, that's sort of the argument that he makes about the convention itself. That's why he talks about them. Like it's a miracle that they produced anything at all. And we're going to reject this miracle in the hopes we can get something better. You gotta be kidding me. Um, I think that those end up being very forceful essays. And I, and I think it, it's sort of, speaks to um, the pragmatism that you see in the later ratification uh, meetings in Massachusetts, 
There's widespread skepticism, including among the political elite in Massachusetts, like Hancock and Samuel Adams. New Hampshire, there's initial skepticism. Virginia, you know, Virginia, the, tit- you know, the titans of Virginia politics are split, you know, but ultimately all of these states end up coming together and narrowly, but nevertheless saying, you know what, we got to do something. And this is the only thing on the table. So um, could you square the circle for me? Um, lately, historians often like to, I think, pushing back against political theorists, many of them from the University of Chicago, like to say, well, come on, this brilliant work of constitutional theory, timeless analysis of politics and Republican theory, this is just a publicity track to win a referendum. Uh, I, I would like you to explain to me how they can be both, because I think they can. Yeah, well, I think it's important to realize that a lot of the a lot of Madison's great Federalist essays. I mean, we talked about ten, we talked about fifty one. I mean, fifty one is you know a combination. I mean, the first half of fifty one is him basically repurposing Polybius for the American context, which itself is just really clever how he manages to do that and sort of and also there is not a lot he could fall back on in explaining the relation. There wasn't any kind of grand theoretical debate at the convention about intermingling the powers, particularly between the Senate and the president. And also the anti-federalists are making a ton of hay out of the dangers of the Senate, which they think has had way too much, way too much power. So for Madison to come up with that kind of that idea of checks and balances and to draw, I mean, really speaks to his education that he reaches all the way back to Polybius's histories and Polybius's understanding of the Roman Republic to bring that through. Um, I would say that, you know, Federalist 10 and Federalist 18, 19, and 20 were in many respects written in Madison's mind before the Constitution began. Federalist 10 has, I mean, there's long passages from Madison's um, debates, his notes on debates at the Constitutional Convention, where he's introducing the idea of the extended republic. It's in the vices of the American, uh, the, the, the political system in the United States, the essay that he writes that spring. Um, Federalist 18, 19, and 20 are about the impossibility of an imperia, imperio and imperium, right? A government of governments. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had already come up with those ideas several years earlier. So what he's doing here, and it's sort of an interesting, it's what makes Federalist 10 really interesting, because Federalist 10 is much more of a justification of the Virginia plan than it is the Constitution, right? Madison's idea in the Federalist 10 is this idea of an extended republic is a way you can safely vest sovereignty. Okay, well, the fact of the matter is, is that the Constitution was only half of an extended republic because Congress was going to be half the House and half the Senate, and the Senate was just going to be the old Continental Congress ported forward with every state getting two votes. So it's not really a defense of the Constitution. He repurposed it for that purpose. So this is is sort of how, like, it, it speaks to his you know, the, the Federalist Papers are written strategically. Those are written strategically, but they are his honest political ideas in justification of the Virginia plan. And he just, oh, by the way, forgot to mention how the Constitution doesn't actually match Federalist 10. So I would yeah. that would be my answer. That yeah. Fe- Federalist 10 is honest, but it's, it's an honest defense of the Virginia plan. It's insofar <laughs> as it's used to defend the Constitution – 
He's really the only thing he's really defending in that is the House and the presidency. Really, he's not defending the Senate. You can't you can't read Federalist Ten as a defense of the Senate. As a matter of fact, later on when he's talking about equal apportionment in the Senate, which I think is like fifty four. I mean, he should have just not written that. I mean, it's one of those things I think I say in my, my book, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say about something, don't say anything at all. He can't even, he, he can't, he, he's just, it's obviously disgusted, still disgusted when he's penning Federalist 54 about the Senate. So you say very interestingly that the Federalist has a, has a, a an awkward position in Madison's legacy uh, from Madison's perspective as he's looking back at his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why is that? It, well, it does because I mean he ends up it's it's his sort of claim to fame, um, and I, I think what happens later on as well. I mean in retirement, I don't really talk about this in the book, but um, y- you know the the notes Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention are not published until after his death, but John Yancing's notes are published because Yancing dies, and then I also think some of Rufus King's notes are published when King dies. And so they reveal in Madison, who is really opposed to state power, really worried about state power. And this ends up embarrassing him late in life uh, because this is also in 1820s in Virginia. Virginia is moving from the most nationalistic of the states to sort of, you know, considering joining South Carolina's push for nullification. So it's very inconvenient for him. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things to bear in mind for Madison it ends up being by the 1820s, it's very clear that his worries about that he had expressed to Jefferson in September, um, that the worries were overstated, that um, maybe he had fallen too far into, you know, theoretical thinking and didn't appreciate that as a practical matter, it doesn't have to make geometric sense. You know, government isn't necessarily a geometric proof that you can, you know, leaven it with common sense and that, you know, as it turned out, John Dickinson had a good point too. And we can have an imperio in imperium, even if it doesn't make logical sense, it makes practical sense. And so I think that is one of the reasons that in time, Madison goes, especially in old age, he becomes really the great defender of the Constitution, even though when he was writing it or he was debating, uh, he wasn't a fan. I also think it's important to appreciate that, you know, when the Constitutional Convention is happening, he's only 36 years old. That is, you know, he that is, he has a right to change his mind yeah Yeah. he has a right to change his mind and you know everybody who's older than 36 especially you know if you're more than a couple years you look back on it and say he he, he was a little impetuous i would say that his seasoned judgment over time was that yeah you know the, the the logic of the virginia plan um it was good logic and we compromised on the logic but the compromise still worked well, I want to skip over the Virginia Convention uh, because we're already like at fifty minutes. In the, yeah. And yeah, although you've recorded three hour podcast once, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah. which which even Joe Rogan finds excessive. Yeah, uh, I don't want, I don't want to do that this time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, and also, we've talked about the Virginia Convention. I, I counted no less than twice in previous podcasts, including with Lori Glover, who wrote an entire book about it, and also with uh, Ryan Cole, who talked about Harry Lee's position. Uh, place in it so right. virginia convention it happens right. uh madison wins let's right. move on uh <laughs> let's get to let's cut to where i began um 
he becomes congressman, and then in the telling of of James Madison's life, he completely changes his mind and right. contradicts himself. Um, yeah. And I know I, I can I can tell I don't have to read too far behind, between the lines that this really hacks you off this yeah. this view of Madison. So explain to us why James, Congressman James Madison in 1792, even yeah. three, four, why he's the same guy with many right. of the same opinions. Yeah. Well, I, I think just to sort of set the level of my argument here um, is that I there's a great irony in Madison's history, which and I've mentioned this, I mentioned this in the book that even though he's the called so-called father of the Constitution, he, he never really offers a very clear understanding for us of what it allows and what it prohibits. Right. Um, so he would change his he he if you think about it as on a purely constitutional or legal level, his jurisprudence is very confused. But I would suggest we think about it in a think about it from the perspective of Republican politics, small r Republican politics. What is a republic supposed to do? Madison's view of a republic is that it's to be, as as I mentioned, and he said, a neutral umpire mediating between factions. And this is what really hacks him off about Hamilton's system is mm-hmm. that the main points of Hamilton's economic system are not neutral. They are partial. They benefit the commercial interests of the eastern cities. Now, in fairness to Hamilton, he's got good reasons to do that. So if Madison believes that the government should be like an umpire, Hamilton is closer to thinking that the government should be like a head coach, favoring certain groups temporarily for the ultimate success of the entire country. Right. And so and it's not just that Groups are benefited. It is what there's two additional things is that the benefits compound upon one another. So give you an example of what I mean by that. Hamilton wants to pay the national debt at full face value, which is a good idea. And it's something that Madison in theory would have supported, except that many Revolutionary War veterans were forced by economic circumstances to sell their debt, their their bonds when they were trading at 15 cents on the dollar. Those bonds end up migrating into the eastern cities and Hamilton is effectively going to offer windfall profits to them. Now, again, Hamilton has very good reasons for that, but that's still what's happening. There's nothing on the back end that's being offered to the veterans who were forced to sell their bonds. So that's not all that Hamilton is willing to do. The other thing he's willing to do is offer them an opportunity to purchase stock in the Bank of the United States, which is going to be, as a public-private corporation, is basically going to have, similar to what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had, basically an implied federal guarantee. So it's going to be a virtually guaranteed moneymaker. Now, that matters because Hamilton is selling a one stock of bank, one unit, one, one, one piece of stock in the bank is purchasable for $400. Only $100 of it have to be paid in cash. The other $300 can be paid in debt certificates. So not only is Hamilton offering these Eastern creditors uh, uh, not only is he offering them a f- windfall profits, but he's allowing them to use those profits to reinvest them into this bank, which is going to make a boatload of money. And that's exactly what happens. So, 
but it goes further in Madison's mind. And, and, and he's not wrong about any of this. I mean, it's, we want, I think there's this tendency to be team Hamilton, team Madison, I think, or team Madison, Jefferson, team Hamilton. But it's, I think it's better and more useful to acknowledge the wisdom that both of them had. This is sort of the subject of my last book um, is that Madison sees Hamilton building through his financial system a kind of patronage machine where um, Hamilton, the reason is, and the the reason is, is that members of Congress themselves are heavily invested in government debt certificates. And what happens is you really begin to see members of Congress engaging in insider trading. Um, And so this ends up mattering, not so much on the passage of the National Bank, which passes overwhelmingly, also doesn't matter so much on the passage of uh, the pool funding of the national debt. But on the third major item in Hamilton's plan, which is the assumption of the state debt. So the idea was is that the federal government was going to take all the debts of Connecticut and turn it into the debts of the debts of the federal government. Hamilton's plan is we are just going to basically write a $30 million check right now. We're going to write a $30 million check. And Madison's response to this is, okay, well, that's all well and good, but the fact of the matter is is that three states are going to be the main beneficiaries. The money's going to go to Connecticut. It's going to go to Massachusetts. It's going to go to South Carolina. Virginia's paid off their debts. We're not getting anything on the back end. So why don't we take a pause here? This is Madison's suggestion. Let's take a pause and finish what he calls the final settlement of accounts. Figure out who paid what, who owes what. Where did all of this money go? And then we'll offer a credit to all of these groups. Challenges is that I mentioned members of Congress are engaging in speculative schemes. And oftentimes what they're doing is they're sending agents down to the hinterlands to buy state debts for pennies on the dollar. And they're also doing this trading on the margin. They're themselves going into debt. And so what happens is that members of Congress need this to pass very quickly. And what they begin to do is they basically hold the national debt hostage, basically effectively saying, if you don't agree to assume the state debts, we're not going to agree to pay the national debt. That's what Madison sees. And and and, and the, the final margin on the assumption of the state debts, the final margin between victory and defeat is just a handful of votes. It is so narrow that it's easy and legitimate for Madison to infer that what made the difference, what made the difference was the self-interestedness of members of Congress. Then Madison goes and looks at Hamilton's arguments at the Constitutional Convention, where he's praising the British system, and he's drawing on David Hume's view of the British system, that the power of the king in the post-glorious revolution settlement to use patronage to get members of parliament to vote with the king rather than with their constituents is actually a good thing. Hamilton likes that. And so Madison is looking at this and seeing Hamilton is trying to build a political machine using basically using the finances of the United States. He's trying to build a political machine to reward the Eastern creditors. And in many respects, that's what Hamilton was doing. And more importantly, that to us today sounds like a really grubby way of doing things. But in the 1780s, it was in the 90s. This, As I said, David Hume uh, said, this is a good thing. I mean, this is sort of a, a legitimate view of politics at that time. This is standard operating procedure in the, the Anglo-American world. And exactly. And Hamilton would say, look at the English, look how successful the English have been 
over the course of the 1700s. They've created a stable government after the revolutions of the 1600s and after the tyranny of the Tudors. Not only are they stable, but they're reasonably free, and they've been able to win multiple wars. They've fought multiple wars over the last 50 years without going bankrupt. Meanwhile, France is in the process of going bankrupt, and then they're going to end up executing their king. So what's so bad about you know Prime Minister Robert Walpole's way of doing things? So this let's um, yeah. let's put a little check mark next to this in the margin because this is uh, extraordinarily important for what I said also in the intro about that Madison's creating a political culture, um, and, and that's that's more important than creating political. That's part of creating political parties, but not just creating political parties. Madison eventually Madison's idea of how American politics should operate uh, wins, and Hamilton's yeah. does not. Yes. Um, and that it changes the way we could still be. Well, <laughs> let's not get into that. You've written books about this, but we could still be. It, we could might go back to more Hamilton's view of things. But for a long time, at least, there was a much more. Uh, there was a Madisonian way of, of viewing things. Uh, one which believed in balance and right. sort of fairness and political fairness. arrangements. Right. And that's um, that's the that's the culture that Madison begins to create and pushing aside Hamilton's idea of the political culture that we should have. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it, it, it leads to, and, and this sort of speaks to the other seeming contradiction of Madison's is why does he create a political party, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in Federalist 10, he uses the word party and faction interchangeably signifying a group that doesn't have the national interest at heart. Well, the, to understand what Madison is thinking here, you have to go back to that, not the name that historians have given to that party, but the name Madison used, not the Democratic Republican Party, but it was called, they called it the Republican Party. It's not the Lincolnian Republican Party, not the modern Republican Party, but Madison and Jefferson and Madison especially in his essays refers to it as the Republican Party and the Republican interest. And what he's drawing on there is this idea of Republican government as the Americans understood it should not play favorites. And so Madison's argument here is that the overwhelming majority of people, basically everybody who's not actively being bribed by Hamilton has an interest in stopping this and protecting the idea of government for all of the people. And the way to think about the, 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 uh, the way to, th uh, the, uh, the way I analogize it in the book is it, the party is, is, is sort of, um, you know, like a wartime party of all the major factions in society getting behind, you know, in like, you know, getting behind Churchill for, for instance, or whatever, or, or Lincoln's coalition, you know, they renamed the Republican party, the union party in 1860 is, is sort of the idea mm -hmm. where we're going to put all of, and Ma Madison says, this, he says, we need to banish all of our, all of the distinctions that we have between merchants and farmers and mechanics, right? North and South. We need to banish all of those distinctions and focus on this threat to our system of government. So it's not a party in the, they don't see it as a party in the modern sense that we see it, where it's a, it's a faction or, you know, with a, an agenda. I mean, I, you can argue that it was. I certainly think it, you can argue that. Uh, uh, but it's not how they saw themselves. They saw themselves as representing the Republican interest, almost like a, like it's we want to capitalize it. But I would say it's almost better to understand it like small r Republican interest. All right. Um, I want to, since we're running out of time, I want to jump forward to uh, basically War of 1812 and then Madison's last years of the presidency. We'll pretend he was never Secretary of State. As you <laughs> say, there are two misunderstandings that led him to be to be fairly assessed as a poor Secretary of State. 
Um, but you have to read the book to find out what those were. <laughs> right. And we're going to turn back to hopefully the questions of nullification at the end of Madison's life uh, when they came up again. Uh, but 1812, America's least favorite war until at least right. until Vietnam was over right. uh, because it was a draw. And we hate those, as, as George C. <laughs> Scott explained to us in Patton. Right. Um, we want to win. Uh, but War of 1812 is uh, um, badly handled. Um, Madison's responsible for some of that, uh, but it had immense consequences, and uh, not least because it removed the possibility of an Indian buffer state on the Western yes. frontier. That was gone. Yes. Um, Canada being a sort of Anglo-Canada power, that's gone. Yes. Um, and then we've got a sort of renewed energy in the executive. Boy, howdy, do we ever. And Madison goes on a tear. Yeah. Uh, for the last part of his administration. Um, could you explain uh, what he achieved and uh, why it can't be understated? Yes, it's remarkable. The 15th Congress is, uh, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure between the first Congress and the Civil War Congresses, there's another Congress as impactful as the 15th Congress. It's extraordinary. Oh, bold, bold words. Bold, bold word. I know. Um, so what does the 15th Congress do? Well, the first thing they do is they recharter the Bank of the United States. Uh, the bank had expired in 1811. It was a disaster. The government was basically paying credit card rates of interest to borrow money during the war. Um, they had to suspend specie payments. So for all intents and purposes, there was a loss of the national currency. So we need to get the bank back. Hamilton was right about the bank and we need the bank back. So they bring the bank back. And, 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 and look, you know, when Jackson gets rid of the bank, frankly, the country is worse off for it. Um, for the next, you know, 80 years, right? The bank worked. So that's one thing they do. So they recharted the and we bank. Don't have to, we don't have to get into it, but the second bank is a different kettle, a different type of bird than the, the first yes. bank. Yeah, and, it, yeah uh, they, they modify it. To, it's, it becomes very Madisonian. It's balanced. It yes, it yeah, does. So. Um, so that's one thing they do. The other thing they do is they begin the protective tariffs. So protective tariffs are going to pr primarily for uh industries that are necessary for national defense. We know today in historical retrospect that the United States and Great Britain have been at peace since Christmas Eve, 1814, but there's no way they're going to know that in 1816. So they passed what's known as the Dallas tariff, which is a broad and um, overwhelmingly popular tariff. It even gets the support of John C. Calhoun, if you can believe that. Calhoun oh, votes what? for the Dallas, Dallas oh. tariff. And the idea is a mild protective duties that are meant for the national interest, not like the later kind of tariffs like the Payne Aldrich tariff or Smoot-Hawley, which are these nasty log rolls of members of Congress just lining the pockets of their of their patrons, uh, a mild tariff. And then the third thing they do, they begin to make a more pronounced commitment to federal sponsorship of internal improvements. This is something that Madison ends up skunking at the end of his term. He vetoes the bonus bill, but what he really wants is a constitutional amendment, but that there's no major i mean they do some minor things they increase the number of they increase the number of lighthouses and post roads but madison sort of is pointing them we need to focus on internal improvements as a project uh, they do other things too less less appreciated they beef up the uh, fortifications up and down the atlantic coast um they also beef up the uh the military, particularly um, its its ability to requisition supplies, so quartermasters, things like that. And they also beef up West Point. That's going to have payoffs in the Mexican-American War. And it's also going to have payoffs in the Civil War as well. So the United States really kind of in 
after 1812 disabuses itself of the efficacy of the uh, 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 of the militia and begins to make investments uh, in a peace establishment for the military. And right. what's remarkable, so all of this stuff ends up becoming like this is Henry Clay's American system in nascent mm-hmm. form. But what's really remarkable about it is a lot of it is borrowed from Hamilton. I mean, the bank obviously is Hamilton wanted industrial protection. Uh, but there's a difference here is that the benefits of this system are not one sided, which is was the main Hamilton's economic program was genius, but it touches off a political controversy, divides the country in half. The Madisonian economic agenda in the 15th Congress ends up leading to the era of good feelings, where the country is generally sort of aligned along the, like mild protection, a strong financial system, commitment to internal improvements. The West gets something, the South gets something, the East gets something, everybody gets something. And more importantly, everybody's economic interests are harmonized with each other. Again, Hamilton talks about this in Federalist 11 and Federalist 12, but he he has the vision, but he doesn't have the right political strategy to bring it about. That's really what makes this so remarkable. And the long-term implications of this is that if you think about those three basic ideas, internal improvements, sound financial system, and protective tariffs, that ends up becoming the backbone of the Republican, like the GOP's political economy between um, the the Civil War and all the way up until the Great Depression. Now, don't get me the wrong. The Republicans, the 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 post Civil War Republicans are that they they do a corrupt, perverted version of it. But they still like the rhetoric and the ideology of the Republican Party after the Civil War reaches back into that Madisonian idea of balanced economic development can achieve harmony and political unity. You um, say that this is not just warmed up, warmed over Hamiltonianism. Uh, why not? Why isn't it? Cause it sure sounds like it. It, it does uh, at first blush. It does sound like it, but it's the, the economics are Hamiltonian. There's no doubt about that. The economics are Hamiltonian, but the politics are distinctly Madisonian. Right. The problem with Hamilton's system was Hamilton was promising benefits to everybody down the line. Right. The short term, there was only going to be a narrow group of people who were going to get benefits. And then not only that, but then they could use those benefits to kind of like because money and power are often fungible. So they could use those benefits to get their hands on the wheels of uh, on the on the knobs and dials of power. Madison's system, though, and the way benefits are distributed is much more equitable. Like I said, that is very important, not just in and of itself as sort of a vision of Republican fairness and how a republic is supposed to work. But I also think Madison doesn't get nearly enough credit for the political calm of the Monroe administration. I don't, I don't think there's nearly enough credit that he gets for that. Um, and, and, and oftentimes we say, oh, well, the era of good feelings, you know, Monroe didn't have anything to do with that. Yeah, that's true. But it was really Madison. And as you alluded to at the at the at the, you know, you know, when we were talking that, you know, when he left the presidency, everybody was celebrating his administration, which is really remarkable. I mean, most of the time when presidents leave the White House, everybody's like, oh, thank goodness that bums out of here. I got tired of looking at his stupid face. Madison actually weirdly is able to bring the country together around this around this political program so that if if we just think about it on a purely economic level yes it's going to look like nothing but warmed over hamiltonianism but this is 
you know, this is a this is a polity, and so the politics matter. I mean, the politics matter at least as much as the economics. I would say, at least if you want to get things done, the politics have to line up correctly. So you have to give Madison credit for that, and I, I would and say it, also <clears throat> Henry Clay as well. Yeah, and if you want to keep them going in some ways, yes. the second bank, the second bank didn't have a strong enough political foundation or there are a lot, there are a lot of other things for the, the second, the failure of the second bank that yes. we, that's not leave that to Daniel Galata. Um, you write that the weak link in Madison's chain between federalism and Republicanism was a matter of constitutionality. Yes. Now that seems kind of extraordinary on the face it of does. it. James Madison, father constitution, Publius, or at least one third of him. Um, is this because he's more of a politician than a political theorist? I mean, I what gives? I'm not sure. I, I mean, I think Madison, like everybody, is guilty of motivated thinking. I mean, we're mm. all guilty of that. I think Madison was particularly not me, but yeah, sure he is. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I mean, so and what I analogize it to in the book is that usually, if he if he supported a, a policy provision, he could find a reason to argue it was constitutional, and if he opposed it hotly enough, he could find a constitutional reason against it. And the challenge with Madison is rather than admitting that he made mistakes like that and saying, oh, yeah, I, he just would offer these, frankly, ham-fisted justifications. So give you an example of what I mean by that. He changes his mind on the Bank of the United States. It's just as simple as that. But he doesn't call for a constitutional amendment. Instead, what he says is, well, you know, it's like if you're a judge, you've been overruled, and you're not going to overturn precedent. You're going to let precedent stand. Okay, fair enough. So – as that argument in and of itself is problematic because it basically says, hey, you know, if you violate the Constitution and nobody catches you for 20 years, then you get away with it. I mean, that's in and of itself problematic. It's not insuperably difficult. Um, you know, there are problems with the logic of stare decisis, but Madison is not willing to apply this thinking across the board because the last full day of his presidency, he vetoes the bonus bill arguing that there is insufficient constitutional sanction for government spending, federal spending on internal improvements. This is despite the fact that Jefferson authorized the building of the Cumberland Road. Also, despite the fact that Madison himself, as president, authorized the expansion of the Cumberland Road. And in terms of, you know, whether or not the internal improvements had been you know, debated enough and marinated enough and whether or not the country agreed, I would say they absolutely agreed more than they did on the bank. Because even in 1811 and in 1815, and we're going to see this with Andrew Jackson, there are still hardcore opponents to the bank. Um, it is not something that you see with internal improvements. And it's little wonder that Monroe, during his administration, is forced to walk back this view that Madison had established. Like, and you, it's sort of, it's a little obvious what Madison's doing. He he's trying to avoid turning the the Article One, Section Eight into a plenary grant of powers. So he's given this opportunity on his last day of office to say, "Here's the line: the co Constitution doesn't give Congress the power to do whatever the heck it wants. Yes, it can do the bank. Yes, it can do protective tariffs. But here's the line: it can't cross this line. Problem is, is that they wanted the line. They wanted, you know, they wanted to cross it. And sure enough, Monroe ends up adopting the idea that Congress can spend money on internal improvements, but Congress can't regulate the way in which internal improvements are made. I mean, it's a typical Monroe mush mouth. doesn't make any sense. Right, but that, I, and, and then Quincy Adams, who follows and who was, you know, Quincy Adams, who adored James Madison, 
ends up just saying, yeah, you know, we're spending money on internal improvements. Give me a break. This is part of the national character and the job of the government is to build up the national character. So that, that's a good example of Madison's confused constitutional thinking. I think much, e even more so than his flip-flop on the bank because Madison could have just said, yeah, you know what? In 1891, the bank wasn't necessary, but in 1815, it absolutely is because we can't regulate the currency without it. But it, there's no way, the problem is not his change of heart on the bank. The problem is his refusal to change his mind on internal improvements. That's, to me, that's where I really run into a wall with this constitutional thinking. So you, after having this outstanding um, exit from the presidency, which so few presidents have, even after their just one term, he goes on to have, you say, not more bold words, one of the most consequential post-presidencies in the history of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, this is in some ways because, uh, surprisingly enough, for a sick, hypochondriac uh, <laughs> little guy, right. uh, he lives a long time. He does. And he lives long enough to see many of his ideas really start to have some operational mileage on him mm -hmm. and begin to show where the, you know, could he used a better... Uh, Used a better tire on that one. Um, mm -hmm, that's uh, mm -hmm. the engine sounds a little rusty on this constitution. Um, this comes about really with the nullification crisis of 1830. We've talked a little bit about this in episode 88. Uh, we, we talked with Christopher Childers about his book on the Webster Hain debate, but mm -hmm. I was he did not get into what Madison was doing in Virginia, which this is sort of around the same time of the Virginia Convention. Uh, which has right. been called after Nat Turner's rebellion. Uh, we've also talked about that in another podcast. Um, and um, Madison is working very hard behind the scenes to make sure that Virginia doesn't join uh, South Carolina as uh, with in the nullification arguments. Uh, could you describe that briefly and then how he sort of his last gift to the American Republic? Yeah. So the challenge, I mean, Virginia has a similar problem that South Carolina is developing as the 1820s roll on, particularly after the Panic of 1819. It hits the export crop industry very hard. There's an agricultural depression that they never really recover from. Um, and so well, okay. coupled with that is um, is very, very high protective tariffs. So the tariff ends up going from this sort of mild temporary duties into really a regional log roll is really what happens with the tariff of abominations. Even before that, though, like the tariff of 1824, Virginia and South Carolina are getting very, very angry. And it begins to develop this argument that, you know, well, we can actually nullify the laws of of uh, of the United States uh, because the Constitution is a compact among the states. And if the compact is violated, no parties to the compact are allowed are, are bound by violations of it. And, and, and so and of course the person they're drawing upon is James Madison. Yes. Unfor unfortunately for them is alive. Yes. Unfortunately for Madison, he's alive. So there are sort of quotations about, um, uh, about, you know, their reading of the federalist and also their reading of Madison's Virginia resolutions. And what happens is you mentioned, you mentioned Haney a moment ago, Haney sends Madison a copy of one of his addresses in the debates with Daniel Webster and Madison, you know, takes about a month to respond. And in the letter <laughs> he writes to him, he absolutely eviscerates Haney's argument showing that, no, this is actually like a agreement among the people of the United States of America acting through the capacity of the States. It's not a compact among the States and that, you know, it, 
and you know, also this idea of nullification has no business within the constitutional system. If there's a law that people don't like, there's lots of recourses to, to deal with the law that they don't like. One of them is not nullification. And also nullification is itself an existential threat to Republican government because it results in the rule of a minority. If a minority can check a majority, then a majority can't rule, right? Um, hmm. And Madison does something unusual for him sends a copy of the letter to Everett, Edward Everett, who's the, I don't remember the newspaper, Everett's the editor. Of North it. American Review. Yeah, he's the editor of the North American Review, and they publish it. So this is an important thing that he does, is he actually steps out into the limelight one last time to sort of, you know, sort of lend his, you know, you know, lend his good name to the fight against nullification. It's a really substantial thing that he does. The other thing that he does is he sort of opens up a back channel with the Jackson administration um, through his personal secretary or former secretary of his who ends up working in the Jackson administration, sort of feeding the Jackson administration ideas and arguments. And Madison also had a reasonably good relationship with Martin Van Buren as well. He's got a good relationship with both sides of the political aisle. He still has got good relations with Clay and keeps up correspondence with Webster. The point, though, is that he uses he, he sort of lends his ideas to this. And, and he and he, you know, and it, a lot of this for him is personal in the sense that he, he felt and I think he was right to, to feel this way, that the Virginia resolutions were misunderstood. And then also, frankly, he's once again, he's left cleaning up, you know, indiscretions of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson <laughs> had a habit of writing things that he shouldn't have written. And they, it, 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 Je Jefferson oftentimes sort of wrote before he thought. Um, he did that a lot, actually. Jefferson does that at multiple points in his career. And one of the things that Jefferson does, and it's completely gratuitous for the purposes of opposing the Sedition Act, which is why the Kentucky resolutions were written, it's completely superfluous, is to suggest that the state of Kentucky has the right to nullify the law. It's and it's even more remarkable that Jefferson wrote that in the Kentucky Resolution because while he's trying to mobilize his political supporters, he's encouraging everybody to just be cool. Don't give Hamilton and his cronies in the army an excuse to march the army down here. Meanwhile, he writes in the Kentucky Resolution he uses the awful word of nullification, which is exactly what you know Calhoun is looking for. Madison is left limply once again and incorrectly to say, well, that wasn't in the draft that Jefferson wrote. They added that later on. They didn't. It's in Jefferson's draft. So, you know, so there's a kind of a personal stake he has in this, but there's also that sort of, you know, the sense of like the union is a good thing and we need to preserve the union and this is going to destroy the union. Well, let's talk about the dog that didn't bark in the night, which is often the most interesting dog. Um, we said earlier that uh, by 1800, Montpelier had 100 enslaved people, mm -hmm. uh, which is a large number. A lot. Um, even even in 1860, that would have been a large plantation. Maybe not mm -hmm. in, in in parts of Louisiana or Mississippi, but even in Virginia, that would still made made you in a very small uh, minority of slaveholders. Um, Jefferson, let's talk about Jefferson. I'll, let me skate over Jefferson and Washington quickly. Jefferson talked a lot about slavery, um, mm -hmm. both personally and publicly. Um, he gave various evidence of his sentiments. Um, Andrew O'Shaughnessy just argued on the podcast, uh, I don't know, was it last week, um, that in many ways Jefferson uh, held 
true to those sentiments, but had so mismanaged his life, he was never going to be able to deliver on them. Um, Washington never talked about it publicly or privately that anyone can tell, but from 1776, he does things. He does certain things which sort of make it clear that by 1799, when he dies, he's going to free those people that he has personally enslaved. Right. Um, Madison does neither. No. Um, Madison, no actions, but no public or private words. Um, Jefferson clearly thought that uh, slaveholding republics were rotten at their core. Yeah. Um, he did not have a theory of uh, republics of necessity. He certainly did not have a theory of republics being of necessity slaveholding. Right. As Calhoun or Alexander right. Stevens would, would later. But right. Madison seems to have no theories of this whatsoever, which is really extraordinary again for a guy who has lots of theories about what how republics are constituted. Yeah, it's it's weird because he makes occasionally, he makes sort of flat, just matter of fact statements at the Constitutional Convention. They, he, he talks about, you know, oppression on what he calls the mere distinction of color being an affront to humanity. That's all he says. He doesn't have any great speech. He doesn't have – and then another, another point he says, um, you know, I think he points out that when slavery exists, the Republican character is diminished even further, which is remarkable in the sense that he thought that, but – Jefferson thought that, and Jefferson was, in his way, tortured by the thought, because right. he recognized that he himself was not living up to those ideals. Madison is aware of that, aware of that, and also he's not inherently racist in this in the way that somebody like Calhoun is. He has a kind of Western chauvinism, which is, you know, the natives are savages in the word that he uses a lot. That don't they don't have, you know, they have you know, they don't have the benefit of Western civilization, but yeah, well, I mean, Madison's generation was said that about Tilla the Hun too. Right. I mean, savage is a Renaissance term of art. It means outside civilization. But the the implied value there is, you know, it's the same with enslaved people as well. And in the implied value in his worldview is that if they, if they were introduced to the elements of Western civilization, they would not be locked in this. And he talks, you know, when he goes up to New York, you know, with visit with Jefferson in 1790, they run into a a freeman who is um, a farmer and Madison's impressed by him. Um, So he has these sentiments. He has similar sentiments to Jefferson. But at least in my research, I never saw any indication that he felt those sentiments strongly. It, like it was, it was, it was like he he was aware on an intellectual level that slavery was wrong, but he never lost any sleep over it. Um, and there is no question about whether he's going to free his slaves when he dies. He's not, uh, because Dolly is it like 20 years younger than him, and the Montpelier estate is a failing venture anyway. He's going to leave them for Dolly. You know, Dolly ends up actually selling a slave to Daniel Webster at one point later on, who then turns around and frees the guy. Um, so there's no question about, you know, slavery is going to go on after he dies. At Montpelier. Which, which is interesting because I think you said earlier that at some point he stopped selling slaves. Yeah, he did. Uh, and he stopped. He stopped. Uh, it was no. because, And that's kind of how you can see Washington going down his road towards manumission. Right. Is by his first his failure to break up families. Well, if you don't break up families, uh, everyone's related on a plantation. Yep. That's right. Um, so once you start breaking up families, you're on your road to saying, I will not traffic in human commerce, which I think right. Washington does by 1784, 83. Right. And once you've done that, 
you're turning your enslaved camp, whatever whatever you want to call it, or your plantation, whatever you wish to say in these in these days, you're turning it into an old folks' home. Yeah, that's exactly uh, what happens with Madison. Upon which you're upon which uh, from which you're depend you're everyone's dependent upon you for care, yeah. and you know I I would you know I've said I think the the research is now showing that from 1830 to 1860, far from being in decline, Virginia. Uh, prospered greatly because they were selling people south. Yeah, that's right. They're selling wheat and and people yep. south. Yep. Uh, wheat to feed the slaves in Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana are far too busy making cotton and sugar yep. to <laughs> feed themselves. Yeah, that's right. And, that is that is that is that is the way that Virgi- that a lot of the sort of failing plantation economy. Uh, pulls itself out of the doldrums after 1819 is the spread yes. of cotton and the, and the rise of sugar in Louisiana creates a market, especially after the end of the international slave trade, there's a market yeah. for enslaved people. And so what they do is they basically sell them up. And that yeah. is something that Madison himself doesn't do. He doesn't do that. And you're right. Like he's by a, the, So he's old fashioned in that way. He's, yeah. he's still, he, he's in that revolutionary era that where they, they recoil at that. Um, and the young guys don't right and rebuild make Virginia by 1860 this wealthy again right um, but but at the same time it's he has no ideas he has no thoughts it's just the absence of thought is fascinating in this yes. in this case it is and it's what's really remarkable about it is that politically Madison was always somebody who was able to think outside of the box and one right. wonders where was anybody thinking outside of the box on the issue of slavery in like 1810. Especially after Louisiana had been acquired, right? Why is there? You know, they have the fanciful idea of resettlement in Africa, which doesn't work. But they don't. There's no concerted effort in that sort of gap before King Cotton begins to exercise its tyranny over the South. Of like, well, what are we going to do about this? There's no. There's there's really very little that they do um, at any point. To be honest, and and it, for what a political imagination James Madison had, and what an ability to accomplish political goals, it it really is a tragedy of that yeah, he never and, put his mind to this. And thinking about it, it's it's the, the vacuum. Um, it it will it needs to be filled. Yeah. And so we go from there to you know from Jefferson and, and notes in the state of Virginia. I tremble for my people when I reflect that God is just. Uh, to Alexander Stevens saying simply, "Mr. Jefferson was wrong." Yeah. Uh, you know the, the older people among the audience will recognize those sentiments which we once shared, but now we know that they were we were wrong. Right. Yeah, it's remarkable. All right. Well, on that cheery note, um, let's <laughs> yeah. uh, finish, let's finish off by talking about balance of uh, balance, uh, uh, Madisonian balance. As I'm thinking right. about it now, you, sh- you should like trademark the phrase. Yeah. Um, that seems to be your your idea of what his legacy is for the American Republic. Could you could you finish off by talking a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it informs our sense of what politics is supposed to do. The politics is ultimately supposed to be fair. It's not supposed to play favorites. Um, insofar as it does, it's supposed to uh, address. I mean, insofar as politics pl- plays favorites, the government plays favorites. It's supposed to favor those who are not favored by the market economy for whatever reason, right? Um, and so, th- I mean, really, that's our only, as a country, that's really the only time we we really deviate from this idea of balance when certain economic groups have been, you know, disadvantaged because of the free market. The idea of balance is, is that everybody comes into the political process and they're treated equally. 
right? Um, it sort of reflects more, one of the things Madison objected to um, all the way back in 1789 in the first session of Congress. I don't remember who, member of Congress promoted, uh, suggested that, you know, we should put the capital someplace that's in the middle geographically and also is close to centers of wealth. And Madison said, I disagree with that. Every, all citizens should have what he calls equal facility to the government, right? Everybody should, if you're a citizen, you should have the, you have the same rights as any other citizen and, and rights and political injustice for Madison is not simply a matter of courtroom justice, but he also sees the political process as being a dispensing of just outcomes, and so the idea of balance would be like Madisonian balance, like to juxtapose it to Hamilton, is how he reworked Hamilton's plan in his final two years as president, where all of the major economic groups in society and all of the major regions of the country could walk away getting something. And it's more than that being a good in and of itself, which it is. But also Madison believes that that kind of balance is how you secure the loyalty of the regime and strengthen the union over the long run. If everybody goes into Washington or sends their representatives into Washington thinking that Washington, D.C. or the government will treat them fairly, they will be loyal to the government and the bonds of union will be strengthened. I think that is really from a psychological standpoint, that was one of Madison's most innovative thoughts. If people believe that they're being treated fairly, they will be loyal to the government and they won't be resentful of their fellow citizens. Instead, they'll think we're getting treated fairly just like everybody else. My guest today has been Jay Cost. He's the author of James Madison, America's First Politician, available now wherever fine books are sold. Jay, thanks so much for being with us on Historically Thinking for so long. Yeah, thank you very much. I've really, really enjoyed my time. Thank you. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.